Good morning. Or should I say good freezing morning? So, uh, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we have been journeying through uh, our renewal series, and today is the last day of that series. Uh, we've gone through renewal through Christ, renewal through the Word, renewal through repentance, renewal through theology, and today we're talking about renewal through love. And, uh, you know, when you think about that, all of these are things that you could come, sit here, or listen at home, and uh, absorb, uh, learn from, uh, make some internal decisions on how your life might be different because of what you've heard and learned, and then leave. And really, nobody would know just how much renewal is actually happening in your life. But today's topic is a little different from that. Renewal through love, love is a tangible uh, thing. It's something that you can really see. In fact, all of our senses are affected by love. We can taste it, we can hear it, we can touch it. Uh, love is something that you can do like take it and stretch it. You can mash it together. You can knead it, right? Uh, love is something that you can smell. It just makes you think of home. It makes you think of those things that you are most appreciative of. Uh, love is definitely a tangible thing. Uh, there are certain people that we all know in our lives that just exude love, and we want to be with them. You know that you're looking forward to seeing them because there's acceptance. There's, there's a wonderment. Um, when I first became a believer, uh, I remember going, getting invited to a Bible study. I'd never been to one before, and the, the funny part of it is my friend who invited me, I'd known him my whole life. I considered him kind of like my brother, but in those high school years, we were going through a rough patch, and uh, his name was Dave as well. He hadn't talked to me for a year or so, and uh, even though we were with each other all day, it was just like, you know, you're such a geek. Well, you're a geek, you know, and all this kind of stuff that went on. And um, he came up to me and said, hey, how would you like to go to a Bible study? But I could tell by the way he was ask, asking me, this was not his idea, right? I'm sure what had happened is, as a new believer himself, he had been told that he should ask somebody to come with him to one of the youth events, and so he decided to ask me, and all the way to the walk, which was about six, seven blocks to the house where this Bible study was, he stayed about a block ahead of me the whole way, and when we got to the house, he didn't say, so that was kind of a, in a nutshell, you know, kind of my life, actually, at that point, uh, you know, a lot of fights, a lot of uh, uh, just anger and so forth, but when I walked into this house, and there was a group of high schoolers sitting there with some adults. Wow. I mean, love, I could have cut it with a knife. It was so different than the world that I was used to. Uh, I'm, I was always on edge looking for where the next challenge was going to come from, looking for the person who was going to say something that was going to require a response, looking for that a uh, guy that was going to decide that we, we needed to fight about something, you know, anything. Instead, I was shown a seat, and people started talking to me, just openly talking to me, asking me who I was, what I was about. Um, and it lasted all night long. In fact, it never ceased. 
Probably more than any single thing that attracted me to Christianity, it was that sense of love. Immediate acceptance, without having to prove myself, without having to justify my words, my actions. And being, you know, me, I said some goofy things through the night, I'm sure, that weren't in the Christian vocabulary and so forth. But there was no judgment. None. Um, and all I could think about is, man, I want to go back. And throughout high school, I remember I would be going to like swim team practice. And you're like, Foster, you were on swim team? Yes, it was a large pool. But anyway, you know, you go to swim team practice, and it's brutal because I swam endurance races, you know, and basically you swim up lane five, down lane six, up lane, and it just goes on all evening for two, two and a half hours. But on Monday nights, when I knew that I had the opportunity to go to that youth group and experience that love again, uh, I could have swam for hours. I just loved it. And everything I did was focused on being back with that group of people. That's what love does. It's a renewal through love. And here's the thing, that even those of us who are long-term Christians and have experienced that at some point in our lives, we need that renewal. We need that recharge because there's another side to church, isn't there? There's another side to God's people. Um, we're all people who have lived sinful lives that have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as much as we want to reflect that in our lives, we sometimes fail at that, right? We say the wrong thing. Uh, we don't do what we could have done to make someone else feel welcome. We're not sure if we can totally accept God the Father's love because we never had a father that really loved us. And so all of this is new to us, and it's something that we're not used to. And so sometimes some churches, um, some really good churches on certain days, don't reflect God's love. Well, that's not the goal. The goal is to where all of us, as a body of Christ, are being renewed by love continuously. Uh, there's probably no other greater adjective for God in all of the word, the Bible, than the word love. Uh, there's many words that the original language has for love, but we're familiar with some of the key verses, you know, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Uh, every little kid in Awana is taught that verse, and they, they learn it in segments. I remember my daughters doing that, you know, and standing on our little ottoman in our living room, reciting, for God so loved the world. And you just ask them, what does that mean, that he so loved the world? And of course, a little kid, well, what are they going to do? What's their definition of love? Well, they're going to point at you or mom and say, well, <clears throat> I, it's like, you love me, Dad. Mommy loves me. I guess God loves me. And it begins at that young age. And if that kid is fortunate and he's raised in a godly home, he, he or she learns what love is, little by little. First um, John tells us the same thing. For God is love, right? And everyone that says that they're part of God if you don't love, then you're really not part of God. There is one definition in the Apostle John's idea of God and Christianity, and that is that you're a lover, that you love others. Not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, not because you yourself are so magnanimous, 
you know, and that you just love people. It's because you're a new creature in Christ, and you have an ability to do something that you didn't used to have. Renewal through love. When we're done with this this morning, if we're actually going to apply what we're going to talk about in our passage from Romans 12, then this is not just an internal mechanism. This is not something that we just, well, yes, I, I can, I'm going to work on this, and no one will really have an ability from the outside to see the change. If we do this right, then North Campus of Parkview Church will be a house of love, right? Just like that Bible study that I went to. I'm not saying it isn't today, but I'm just saying people who walk in here should have that ability to sense that there's something very different between being in here versus living their everyday life out there. This in here, God's love. The people of God love each other. That out there, not so much. I have a little chart diagram that uh, we made up this week, and it shows the church full of God's people, right? And they're in love with one another. That is the thing. Christ talked over and over and over again about love, right? And then there's that arrow going out from the church. When we depart this church, it's not like we turn the love switch off. All right, I'm done loving. I don't have to treat anybody else that way. That was hard. I can barely get through that. No, we keep loving people. We keep loving people because Christ, as we're going to see in our passage today, says things like, love your enemy. Love those who persecute you, Paul says. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do. On Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, you know, the easiest thing in the world is to love someone who's your friend, but to love someone who has hurt you, to love someone that has cost you something, oh, man. I had a guy uh, when I was going to school, I don't know where he came from. It's just like he appeared out of nowhere. And he just came up to me on campus and he said, hey, Foster, I think you live somewhere near me. And I'd live quite a bit further north in Dallas area than the seminary. So it was a good 45 minute drive without traffic. I went super early. But this guy uh, decided that he wanted to ride with me. And I didn't want him to ride with me. I, I don't know about you, but I can be kind of prickly, especially in the morning right? I, I have my routine. I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm not somebody that had to have certain things like a muffin or anything like that. I just like the quiet. I like to just drive. And it was that 45 minutes of quiet and silence that allowed me to survive the rest of my day. And now here was some human being who wanted to get in the car with me and share that time, that space. And I knew it was going to require conversation you know, at, at 4.30, 5 a.m., and I didn't want to do that, and I didn't know this guy, and he was a huge talker. I mean, it wasn't like I was really, I found out, expected to contribute anything to the conversation. You know, it was like putting a quarter in a slot, and this guy is the whole way down there. And I remember telling my wife, I don't know if I can handle this. I, I think I'm going to make my first enemy by telling this guy, we're not going to do this anymore. And her suggestion to me is, why don't you pray for him? Why don't you pray for him? And so I did, and I felt like God was saying, you need to do this, Dave. I want you to love him. And I did. And I wish I could tell you it was always enjoyable. 
and it was something that I was always nice about, but I wasn't. But nevertheless, over time, we actually became pretty good friends, and I learned to appreciate him. Uh, I hope that he would say the same. Love takes on different shapes and forms as we live life. It comes at us in unexpected ways. And the real test of love, how we know that it's made a difference of renewal in our life, is when we walk out that door and our expectations, our demands about how our life should be are left at the cross. And instead, we take that same love that Jesus shows us and we show it to others. Well, Paul didn't want us to have any doubt about what love looks like, so he decided uh, to continue this discussion in the book of Romans, chapter 12. We're going to be reading down 9 through 16 this morning. So if you want to follow along with me in your Bibles, please do. But we'll just do a quick read here. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Tremendous passage of Scripture, right? You're like, wow, how many commands are in there, you know? Well, if you walked in this morning here in person, you should have gotten a little chart. I hope you picked that up out on the table because that's what we're going to be buzzing through. I don't know that I'm going to hit every one of these because we'll be here until 3 p.m. this afternoon. But uh, if you're watching at home, they're on the slides that are being shown. So hopefully you could get a copy of this. But we're going to talk about the commands that the Apostle Paul gives us and how love is supposed to look. Because, you know, the truth is when we say, we love someone, uh, you may mean something different from that than I mean. I may mean something about that love than God means. So Paul's going to lay it out for us as believers. If you want to be renewed in love, here's what it should look like, all right? So we're starting in verse 9. That's what we're looking at. And uh, it's an interesting phrase. I'm going I'm to argue this morning that that first part of verse 9 is actually the heading for the rest of these commands. There's really no verb in that phrase. Uh, we supply one in our English translations uh, of our Bibles, but as far as the original language, it just basically says, love gentle, or love be gentle, something like that. It's just a, it's a phrase, and I think Paul purposely is doing that to set it apart from what follows. But if your Bible says genuine, <clears throat> it might say sincere, it might say real, uh, it just says anything other than don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. Love is real. Love is genuine. Now, to the first century mind, the person that uh, Paul is writing to, the Christians at Rome, uh, when they hear the word love, uh, there's different ideas of that, right? As I said earlier, there's different words that we can use for this. But Paul is saying the love of Christianity, it's real. And it should be apparent to those who know us. 
It's a sincere love with relationships for people in the church. Paul is first initially going to address those of us who are already believers in Christ and who attend the house church at Rome. He says, love, be genuine. And then he's going to describe how that's supposed to look. He's going to flesh that out for us just a little bit. Abhor what is evil. Abhor, abhor what is evil. That word is a violent, violent word. Uh, it's the idea of going to war. It's not like, well, I can see something that's evil and I'm going to cross the street to get around it. No, this is more like putting on your armor and you're deciding to attack it. If evil is a pit bull coming down the sidewalk towards you, growling with saliva dripping out of its jowls, you are not supposed to retreat, right? As a believer, you are putting on the armor of God and you're going after it. Well, what exactly is evil? Why We were talking about that this weekend, and we just thought of these things that the Lord hates in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, pride, right? Uh, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among his brothers. So as you look at that, you're thinking, well, that's, that's kind of evil in a nutshell. God doesn't like these things. He doesn't like pride. He doesn't like deceit. He doesn't like violence, you know, and so forth down the list. We are supposed to, as believers, abhor it. Which you think when you're talking about love, how did evil sneak in the door? How are we talking about that? But that's actually a very focused statement by the apostle here. He's saying evil cannot exist in a house of love. It just doesn't. Uh, we want to make sure that evil is not something that we abide by or that we put up with. Uh, love does not bring evil into a relationship. It does war against evil in your relationship. And then Paul contrasts that in the next phrase there when he says, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. These two are in you know, antithesis to each other. Abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good. So as we looked at Proverbs passage, what would be the opposite? If you had haughty eyes, humility, right? If you have a lying tongue, truth, and so forth. And you could just come up with the uh, opposite statement for each one. This is what the Christian should do. We should hold fast. The, the verb here to hold fast is to cling, to hold on with a grip that never lets go, Actually, it's a sexual term, if I can be a little graphic here. Uh, it's the same one used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 16, where Paul says that, don't you know that when you join with a prostitute that you bring the Holy Spirit in with you? And then verse 17, and then the same way that when you join with God, the same idea, right? So the idea is to cleave, to become one flesh. It's, it's something that is, is permanent. So we should hold fast, not optionally to what is good, not when it suits us to what is good, but we should always hold to what is good. Cling is an intimate term. Hold on to. Find out what is good, and then don't take it for granted. As you come into the church, as you work with God's people, if you come to meetings here, and if you're in ministry, you're looking for what is good. And when you find it, 
you hold on to it. Paul is saying, hold on to that. And of course, the greatest good that we hold on to is the fact of our salvation in Jesus Christ. The fact that we're not the same people that we used to be. We're redeemed in him. We abhor that which was evil, my old life, and I'm going to cling now to what is good. Paul had to remind them, God has called you through the efficacy of Jesus Christ out of that life that you used to have, and he has pulled you into a new life. He's clinging to you. It says that once you're in the Father's hand, of course, no one can take you from that, right? He's clinging to you. You should also cling to him and to cling to others. Since God's got such a good grip on you, you now have the freedom to turn and to cling on to others, right? It's not an option. It's what we do. That's what we want to do. Let's look at the next one that Paul lays out here. Love one another with brotherly affection. He's using the term for brother here twice in a slightly different ways. To love one another. To have that phileo love, like in the word Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love, city of brotherly love. This is a familial term. Uh, we should embrace each other. When you come in here, and you know, people, when they're brand new believers, they'll go to a church like ours, and they'll hear us refer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's a little offsetting sometimes. They're like, well, how are they my brothers and sisters? It's the new family that Jesus created when he died on that cross and he rose from the dead. Because of his redemption, we now have relationships with each other in here, just like we do with our own family. In fact, it's actually, according to the scripture, a stronger bond than what we have with our actual family. Now, when I think of this, I think of my brother, Dean, and uh, he's a great kid, uh, but growing up, we hated each other. We spent no time together. We fought all the time. In fact, after becoming believers uh, and really kind of rediscovering our friendship for one another, it was that renewed relationship that caused my mother to finally give her life to Christ because she could see there's such a change, and the change that she was noticing was in the relationship between Dean and I. Next to my wife, my brother today, and has been for decades, he's my best friend. There's nothing that we can't talk about. We love being around each other. We don't get to see each other that often, but we do love it when we're there together. I can't imagine uh, anybody having a closer relationship to me than Dean. Now, the New Testament says, Dave, when you walk into this church, there's people in there, and I want you to be as close to them, if not closer, than you are to that, to that man. Now, it's great that my brother is a believer. That kind of solves that problem for me, but it doesn't get me off the hook. I need to be working towards that. The people of the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're in the same family. What would I do, or what wouldn't I do for my brother? If he needed money, would I give it to him? Absolutely. If he needed food, would I give it to him? Absolutely. If he needed a ride from where he lives in Des Moines to some crazy place, uh, would I give it to him? Sure. Anything he could ask of me, I would give it to him freely and happily. So would I do and should do for the people of God. That's what we do. We're a family. Love one another with brotherly affection. Love them like they're your own family. See the church as your family members because Christ has redefined us. 
those biological bonds now become just momentary in God's eternal plan. When you die and go to heaven, the focus will not be on your familial relationships that came from your mother, right? They're going to be on the relationship that comes from Jesus Christ himself. His blood has sparked a new genetic process within you, in a sense, that has made you spiritually, physically, in every way possible related to one another. It's going to be an awesome eternity when you think about that. Uh, it's not that you might get a chance to visit somebody like Martin Luther or John Calvin or you know, Amy Carmichael or anybody. It's, you're now related to them. You don't have to ask permission. You know, if I go to Des Moines, I, I feel very free to go to my brother's house and knock on the door. I may not even knock. I just might walk in because I belong there, right? And I know in the basement, in his refrigerator, he's going to have a stack of Diet Pepsis waiting for me, right? Just in case I happen to come by. It's the same way. People come into this church, they should feel like there's a place for them. When we go to heaven, we're going to have that entree with each other because of Christ. It's an amazing, amazing statement that Paul is making here. This is so different from the culture that Paul was writing to. They had no concept of this kind of familial love. They certainly didn't have any concept of this happening with people that weren't that close to them, that weren't in their family. Christianity completely turned upside down the concept of relationship because of the blood of Christ. Then Paul goes on and he says, outdo one another in showing honor. I love this verse. Maybe it's one of my favorite ones here. To outdo, strong verb. It's to surpass. It's to uh, be in competition with one another. And you say, well, we're all in love with one another. We're brothers and sisters. Can you do competitions with each other? Um, I'll go back to my brother. When I walk in the house, if he's there, it doesn't take too long before we're probably wrestling, you know, challenging one another. We're just brothers. We just love to knock on each other and have a great time. There's no doubt we love each other. But when we go out to dinner and that check comes, maybe your family's like this too. Do you dive for the check? You're like, yeah, that, that's mine. No, no, you got it last time. No, it's mine this time. And, you know, we can get kind of bloody about the whole situation, right? I mean, it's, it's just something that we have learned. That's what we do. That's who we are. But we don't want that to be someone else's job. We want to take that on ourselves. That's what it means here, to outdo one another in what? In showing honor. You don't have to pick up the check for me. But you do have to show honor. And what is honor? Well, honor has the idea of taking someone and lifting them higher than you. Right? It's not always easy. We're all somewhat aware of the competition that exists between us and our society. I'm wealthier than you. I'm smarter than you. I have this many degrees. I've this accomplished with what I've done with those degrees. Whatever. And for us to come into a church, all that stuff is just left at the door. Right? We just empty. Think of it like there's a big box. And I said, okay, here goes what I'm worth. Here goes my degrees. Here goes this. Here goes that. And when I walk in here, my goal my competition is to make sure that you think that you're higher than me. I want to honor you. 
It's like in the book of James. You don't take the front seat, the best seat at the banquet. You wait until you're invited, but you immediately sit down in the back. If you're in a conversation with someone, you listen until you're invited to speak, right? In every way, we are seeking to outdo one another. We want to be that person that lifts up and honors others. It's a competition. Uh, I can't, I was trying to think of illustrations for this, and I really can't, because uh, I've met individuals that have made me feel so wonderful. They just go out of their way. I had a really good friend who could do this, but a whole church, a whole church that worked at this, wow. I would have loved to have gone to the church at Rome if they actually started applying this to outdo, to surpass, uh, be the best at doing this. You know, if you could do this and stay humble, there's our award, our annual award at North Campus for that person which has outdone everyone else in showing honor to others. What, what a, an amazing thing. I consider you better than me. And then Paul says this, do not be slothful in zeal. It's an interesting phrase. Do not be slothful in zeal. What does he mean by that? Well, we understand slothful. That's lazy. Uh, that's wanting to stay in bed longer, uh, not wanting to work hard. Well, don't do that is what he's saying. It's a negative command. Do not be this way. In what? Though this is the tricky part. In zeal? What's the definition of zeal? Zeal just means to be in frenzied, right? You are so excited. I'm zealous for this. I am a zealot for what? Paul doesn't complete the sentence. And again, I think that's his goal here. He says, just in your zeal, be after it. Don't be lazy. Well, what can I be zealous about? When my uh, girls were in high school uh, and they needed rides to City High, uh, of course, like all high schoolers, they hated getting up in the morning. It was always, uh, uh, you know, they didn't want to be there. But we'd get in the car, you know, Monday morning, and I'm taking them, <clears throat> and uh, it was my job to make them zealous, right? So you get in the car, and I'd be like, good morning! It's great to have you guys here. It's love gone. Guess what? You guys get to go to school today. What a privilege! And they're looking at me like, is there another family that I can join, you know, or something like that. But that was my job as dad. I wanted them fired up. You know, if you're playing football, you do chest thumps. You might bash your head against another guy just to get yourself pumped up before the game. When I get ready to preach, I kind of go through that routine. I sit there and I think about what I'm going to get a chance to do. Uh, I get zealous for God. What are you zealous about today? When you walked in that door, you can fill in this blank. This is carte blanche for you. You can take your pen out and you can write anything in to finish that sentence, right? Be zealous. Be, I'm full of zeal for what? What am I full of zeal for in God's house? Uh, you know, if you're like me, there's too many Sundays where you come in, where I come in, and I sit down and I'm tired and it's been a hassle getting the kids in the car. And like today, it's negative 3,000 degrees. And I don't want to be here. And boy, that guy better be entertaining. 
and I'm sick of all this, and you know, and everybody can tell you don't really want to talk, and so forth. Uh, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I want you zealous. I want you zealous. I want you to be full of zeal for what? Fill in the blank. It's yours. Are you zealous for service? Do you love to serve God's people? Do you love to serve in children's? Do you love to serve with high schoolers? Do you love being a deacon? Do you love being an elder? Do you love doing acts of service? Do you love working back there and helping us with sound and video? Do you like Will and Gabby up here singing music? Uh, like Eric today doing the confession. Uh, are you zealous? What are you zealous for? Are you just zealous for looking for that person that needs a word of encouragement this morning? Are you singling out that person as you look around that says, man, that person could really use a word of encouragement. I want to pray with that person. I want to meet their physical needs. Are you a giver and you know that somebody's hurting and you're going to use how God has blessed you to bless? I mean, just fill in the blank. The only thing you're not allowed to do is to be slothful, is to be lazy about it, is to let the opportunity pass without you doing anything about it. Be full of zeal. Uh, that was a term that, of course, people in Paul's day were very used to because there was a whole political party of zealots, people that, at least in the Jewish uh, community, were zealous for the nation of Israel to come back to the point where they were the cause of riots, assassinations, anything that would disrupt the Roman rule of order or the Herodian rule of order. They were not afraid to take that on themselves. Now, I don't want you to be in that party, but you should have that similar zeal, that, that excitement about doing those things for God that you can do. That's the important thing. Be zealous, fill in the blank. I, my challenge to you this morning is just as you're sitting and thinking about this, is write something in the margin of your Bible or in the front flyleaf page of your Bible. I will be full of zeal in God's house for this. I will be full of zeal in God's house, or you could say with God's people, for this. Uh, this is not an option, by the way. Paul's not saying, well, if you feel like it, be full of zeal. If it suits you, be full of zeal. If it kind of fits into your personality, be full of zeal. Because for some of us, to be full of zeal is totally opposite of how we feel like God has made us. We're just not those kind of people. We're not on fire. In fact, if you got in the car with me in the morning, you would probably smack me, right? You just can't take it. Who needs that kind of, you know, voice hitting them at seven in the morning? But I'm telling you, Paul is saying, be full of zeal in God's house. Be fervent in spirit. Those are two terms, two phrases that have a lot in parallel. Be fervent in spirit. Be a kook for God. You know, Be somebody who is just on fire for Christ. Be set on fire by his Holy Spirit. Uh, listen to what God is telling you to do and then do it fervently. It means, just like what it sounds like, something that has been ignited, right? If the previous one is telling you to uh, be zealous, this one is saying, 
in a similar way, set yourself on fire. And we use that terminology a lot in Christianity. I'm on fire for God. But unfortunately for us, our fires are temporary for the most part, right? We go to a retreat. We listen to a sermon. Uh, we go to camp. There's different things that we get involved with as Christians. And for that period of time, we're on fire. Yeah. I had kids in my old church uh, in the community. We'd go to our missions trip every year to Mexico. We had three churches that we had created and adopted, and we worked with them all through the year. But there was a 10-day period there where we went down there and we did ministry with them and so forth. And God worked in amazing ways in the lives of my teenagers. But when we got home, they would say they were on fire for God. They're in the hallways at school sharing their faith. They're uh, creative, and they're th being in leadership in the youth group, and they're doing all these things. And I remember uh, overhearing some guys talking, and one guy said, my girlfriend, you know, she went on that trip with that youth group, and she's not as physically active with me as she used to be. And the guy said, yeah, don't worry about it. That happens every year. Give her about a month, and she'll forget that whole thing, and she'll be right back with you. Oh, it was a knife to the heart. That means that our fervency can be put a clock on <clears throat> so that we can just say, well, this will last for this period of time. None of us is on all the time, but the fervency of Christ, it can be there, even if the fire is dimmed down a bit. It's always should be there. And if we need it to get jazzed up, let's do it, right? Do whatever you have to do. When we do marriage counseling, and I've mentioned this before, we often talk about the dad coming home after a hard day at work. And what you can't do is walk into the house and sit down and start reading a newspaper and turning on the TV and just said, I need some alone time, honey. I, it's been a terribly tough day. Can you take the kids and just keep them quiet? Because I'm going to go nuts if I have to do one more thing. You know, that's not the goal. You know, the goal is for you, dads, to get revved up. You drive around the block a couple times. You reset the emotional meter in your heart because when you hit that door, your dad, your husband, and you're like, yes, what do we want to do tonight, kids? What? I'm going to help make dinner. I'm going to give kids baths. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm not turning on the TV. Whatever it takes. Similarly, when you hit that door and you come in here, make sure that your fervency dial is turned up, right? That's what Paul would say turn it up. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That's what he says next. And I think most of us are familiar with serving the Lord, but the idea is just be ready to do that at all times. And then he says in verse 12, rejoice in hope. Uh, these next three are things that Paul was saying to them, these next three commands, for them to keep in mind in a society where living for Christ wasn't easy, where it might actually cost you something. So to us today, we could apply these. Even if when you go to work, no one else has ever evidenced a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know you have to be careful on what you say, when you say it. Um, maybe you leave your Bible out on your desk. Whatever it is that you're doing, uh, he says, rejoice in hope. Have security in the knowledge that no matter what you're going through, you should have hope. God will be with you. The family of God is secure. We can count on each other. 
My greatest source of hope is that when I come in this door is that I'm going to find other believers who've had the same kind of week that I've had who are going to feel like this is the one place that they come, can come and find their cup refilled, find safety. Uh, this should be an oasis in our spiritual life, right? Coming to church, coming to a Bible study, anything where we can be with the people of God because they love us, they're outdoing one another and they're a desire to show honor to us, uh, they're fervent, all those things, they're just amazing to be around. We can take risks with one another. Be in hope. And when we go out through those doors and we go back in the world, we have the hope of Christ with us. Be patient in tribulation, even though you're going to go through trials. Now, this is a little bit different than persecution. Sometimes we read this and we think, well, be patient in tribute because people are going out and they're, they're being you know, persecuted by the, well, that's possible. But probably, this just means the everyday trials of life. You're having a financial situation. You're having a sickness. Uh, the doctor's giving you some bad news. He says, be patient in tribulation. Um, even around us, you know, believers will come around you and pray for you, love on you, and so forth. Be patient. Uh, God is with you. Don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. Be consistent or constant in prayer. It's one of the most powerful commands there is for the believer. Always, without stopping, be in prayer. Pray for one another. When we share prayer requests, don't tell somebody, well, I'll pray for you, if you have no intention of doing that. But when you say that, try to think of some way that you can make sure that this will become a moment of prayer for you. When I hear someone call us or send an email saying, would you please pray for this? Uh, it's not uncommon for us to at least stop what we're doing and we just pray for that situation. Uh, we, we want to be constantly in a state of prayer, requesting the Father. Think of it this way, and I think this is the way that Paul means it. When your kids need something, if you're a parent today, if your kids need something, don't you want them to come to you? Don't you want them to come and ask you for that? Uh, especially when they're sincere, when they need something. That's what Paul is saying. We should be go, able to go to each other and get prayer. We want people to pray over us, for us, around us. Uh, we pray for those who are being persecuted. We pray for those who are, life seems to be going well, but we're constantly in prayer. And the next two are taking care of the household of God. Contribute to the needs of the saint and seek to show hospitality. We contribute, we give. Some of us have gotten the gift of giving, but all of us, even if we don't have that gift, should be giving to the body of Christ. In the first century church, you gave everything you could afford to give, and more sometimes. You just, in faith, <clears throat> gave of your physical resources. So we should do for one another. Uh, that involves part of that prayer. How else can we give? What more can we give? God, give more to me so I can give more to others. Let me be that vehicle, that, that uh, funnel for your blessing to other people. And then showing hospitality. That's a good one, you know. Not everybody finds that comfortable to bring people into their home, but hospitality has a broader translation than just bringing people into the home. You can show hospitality if you never have anyone in your home. You're looking to their needs. That's what a hospitable person does. It's the gift, yes, of using your home, but it's also the gift of using things that make people feel at home. You practice this. You get used to this. You let people 
uh, do this. I, I've, I've been so blessed by different people that have shown us hospitality. And then lastly, those last three verses of that original chart with people in the church and there, there's an arrow going to the world. Well, these last three verses, I believe that Paul is saying, keep these in mind when you leave the church. Bless those that persecute you. Again, quote from the, uh, Jesus when he was doing his uh, Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5, <clears throat> also repeated in Luke 6. Uh, bless those that persecute you. Do not curse them. Uh, blessing is contrasted with cursing. There's a neat little uh, study that we've gotten involved with, uh, Ione and I, uh, called Forgiving Forward. If you ever want to hear more about that, that would be great. But we walk with individuals and couples through forgiveness. And the last step, if you look on the back of this neat little bookmark, when you start going through the protocols of forgiveness, you have the usual things that you would think of in forgiveness, uh, the prayer of forgiveness and so forth. But the last thing that you do is you pray a blessing for that person that you've been very angry at. <clears throat> and we find that this is the thing that actually proves that you have actually forgiven them. I bless you. God, please bring this blessing in Iona's life. Please bring this blessing in Dave's life. I have forgiven them. Uh, when I get angry at somebody, that is the hardest part of that prayer. Jesus is saying to us, and Paul is following up with that, bless those that persecute you. There's nothing that anybody can do to you or against you that you shouldn't be able to forgive and to bless. Then he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Both are imperatives. Uh, this is interesting. I read one guy that said, rejoicing is first because when you rejoice, uh, you're really having an excellent time with somebody. You, you, you find that more difficult to do. Uh, everybody can weep. You see somebody who's crying in one of the seats or you go home to your house and somebody's crying and it's not hard to sit down with them and empathize. But to rejoice, that can be difficult, more difficult than it sounds because sometimes we're not really happy that other people are happy, right? We're not happy that the, they're so joyous over something, but that's the, the emotional state that we should be entering in with others. And lastly, live in harmony. Do not be haughty. Live in harmony. Do not be haughty. Uh, that's mentioned so many times in uh, the word, but it's a unity of thinking. We see it in Philippians 2, 1 Timothy 6. Uh, we want to be in harmony with everyone. We fit together. These are great commands of the love that we should have for one another, right? Uh, both in the church and then when we leave the church into the world. How great would the testimony be if people would know that this person is a believer because what does it say? Because of their love. When my daughter was born, uh, my oldest one, uh, C-section, all of my daughters were C-sections, but I got to be in the room when they, she came out of Ione, and the fun part was is that she had something go wrong in the delivery, and of course she was screaming and yelling and all this kind of stuff. And I had made a point, as many of you have done this too, in talking to her long before she was born. I thought that would be fun. You know, this Iona's pregnant, and she would lay there in bed, and I would just talk uh, at Rachel. And I think she got to the point where she really knew who I was, but I, this became a proven fact when 
she was screaming and everything, and the doctors had to run tubes down her mouth and other places, and oh, it didn't look fun. And then finally they wrapped her, and they said, would you like to hold her and then walk her down to the nursery at the hospital? And of course, she is just going crazy. Ah, you know how babies' backs arch when they're really mad. And I was so new at this, I didn't know what I was doing. But I remember that I just said, Rachel. And she stopped, just like that. Rachel. And she looked at me. And her eyes were closed. She wasn't seeing me. But her head turned. And she was quiet the rest of the time. And I just talked to her all the way down the hallway until we got to the nursery where there was the incubator and the doctors and the nurses. But I was put in a rocking chair and we just continued our conversation, right? When people come in this door, when you go out into the world, when people hear you, they should hear the voice of their father, their heavenly father. They should hear something that makes them just stop in the craziness of their life, in the torment of their anger, and look at you and say, whoa, I'm hearing something. It's not Rich, it's not Eric, it's not Dave. It's God, because I feel his love. I know he cares. I know she cares. Then we've reached our goal. Then we know that we've been renewed in love.